On June 24, 1947, Kenneth Arnold flew his small private plane around Mount Rainier in western Washington state. Arnold was a search and rescue volunteer looking for the wreckage of a military transport, but he couldn't see much past the lush green canopy. After a fruitless few hours, Arnold pulled up to cruising altitude. Conditions were pristine, clear skies, low wind. Arnold had a gorgeous view of Mount Rainier's sparkling peaks. Until a bright flashing glare interrupted his field of vision. Arnold searched the skies for the source of the light. He wondered if maybe he had unknowingly drifted close to another airplane. Arnold couldn't hear any other engines, but he did see something strange. Nine aircraft flew in formation just north of the mountain. Every couple of seconds, a few dropped down towards the mountains. The movement made the sun reflect off their metallic shells. He squinted to get a better look. These were unlike any other aircraft he'd ever seen. He was too far away to conclusively discern their design, but they appeared not to have tails. Determined to make sure his eyes weren't playing tricks on him, Arnold opened the window of his cockpit. Without the distortion of the glass, Arnold now felt sure. The aircraft's shadows on the mountain snow looked entirely round. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals by ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our first episode in a special four-part series on the United States military's once-classified research on UFOs. Each episode will examine a different top-secret government project. This time, we'll discuss the very first, Project Sign. Beginning in 1947, a small team of Air Force officials and scientific experts set the tone for all future UFO research. And they were the first to officially consider that the unusual aircraft flying in American airspace might not be from this planet. Next time, we'll examine Project Grudge and the ongoing struggle between skeptics and researchers to steer efforts towards and away from the truth. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After his unsettling experience above Mount Rainier, Kenneth Arnold landed his plane at the airport in nearby Yakima, Washington, feeling shaken. He told other pilots on the airstrip about what he'd seen, but most of them brushed him off. Both civilian and military aviators assumed Arnold had spotted a test flight for some kind of new technology, possibly an unmanned craft or a group of guided missiles. But Arnold couldn't accept this easy explanation. And he wasn't alone. Arnold spread his story to more pilots at the Pendleton, Oregon base. And by that evening, Arnold's telephone was ringing off the hook. Though his peers scoffed at his story on the tarmac, they told others about his experience. He received an overwhelming number of calls from individuals who had experienced similar sightings people theorizing about what he saw, and, of course, members of the press. Arnold shared his account with multiple publications. Among his many quotes, he told a Pendleton, Oregon reporter that the objects flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across the water. The story caught like wildfire. Only three days later, newspapers nationwide carried headlines about flying saucers. Although Arnold's story was the first of its kind to be widely publicized, it didn't stay that way for long. Many others had tales similar to Arnold's, but they'd resisted sharing them until now. They didn't want to admit that they'd seen strange lights and shapes in the sky because they didn't know how others would react. Many had even convinced themselves that they had imagined it. But everything changed when Arnold spoke out. From the end of June into July 1947, papers all over the country published about 850 different UFO sightings. In fact, UFOs were so top of mind that in early July, an editorial in the LA Times claimed that flying saucers had usurped the weather as the most popular topic of small talk. Naturally, there was a demand for answers from the experts within the United States Air Force, or USAF. Initial Air Force comments tried to quiet the frenzy. On July 4th, an anonymous spokesman confirmed to the New York Times that the Air Force reviewed all published UFO claims. But in their professional opinion, none of the details in the reports elicited any need for further investigation. An official statement from the USAF read, We are inclined to believe either that the observers just imagined they saw something, or that there is some meteorological explanation for the phenomenon. 
In other words, UFOs were just tall tales. But behind closed doors, the USAF held a very different opinion. They were desperate to find out anything they could about the strange aircraft flying through American airspace. They were especially concerned when they received the first reports of UFOs spotted at an American military base. July 8, 1947, started out completely normal at Muroc Army Airfield, a remote, high-security facility in the Mojave Desert. The base primarily served as a research and development center, where military scientists and pilots built and tested new technology. It was a hot and dry morning. Sergeant Joseph Rivolo sat at his desk, slurping down his coffee. He was surprised when First Lieutenant Joseph C. McHenry entered the office around 9.45 a.m. McHenry was in a frenzy. He gestured wildly, asking Rivolo to follow him. He seemed spooked. McHenry led Rivolo outside and pointed wordlessly at the bright sky. Rivolo's eyes widened in surprise when he finally saw what had caused the first lieutenant's alarm. Two silver disks floated in the distance, silhouetted against the horizon. In his official statement to superiors, Rivolo estimated that they were only 7,500 or 8,000 feet off the ground and moving fast. He suspected that they traveled at about 400 miles per hour. But their most unnerving quality was their silence. Rivolo couldn't hear an engine. He had no idea what could possibly have kept those disks suspended in the air, let alone moving at such high speed against the wind. As suddenly as they appeared, the objects sped away and vanished from view. When the Pentagon read Rivolo's report, which had been corroborated by other witnesses at the base, hysteria broke out. Officials wanted to know everything about the flying saucers, and they wanted to know now. The sighting at Muroc struck fear into the hearts of every bureaucrat in the Pentagon. It was one thing for a civilian of questionable sobriety to see strange lights over their cornfield. It was another for a group of military men to see unidentified flying objects near a secure United States military base. The intelligence arm of the USAF jumped into high gear. They were now investigating the very same phenomenon they'd been downplaying in the press. Those aircraft represented a significant danger, and there was a general consensus about where the threat came from, the Soviet Union. Although the USSR fought with the United States against the Axis powers in World War II, the two countries remained wary of each other, even after they declared victory in 1945. Americans looked down on Soviet communism and the iron grip Joseph Stalin held on the nation. As the USSR gobbled up territory in Eastern Europe in the mid-1940s, American apprehension towards the Soviets grew. When Kenneth Arnold spotted his flying saucers in June 1947, America and the Soviet Union were at the start of the Cold War, a decades-long diplomatic standoff. So when UFOs first appeared on the cultural landscape, the Soviets were at the top of the U.S. government's suspect list. 
The vast and remote Soviet Union had proved nearly impenetrable to the United States' espionage efforts. For American military intelligence, the country represented a blind spot. It seemed the Soviets could be capable of anything, even creating extraordinary round hovering airships. By the end of July, an intelligence division of the Air Force generated a preliminary report based on a large-scale review of credible UFO sightings countrywide. They arrived at several conclusions. First, they now felt confident that unusual flying crafts really were soaring through American airspace. Although some incidents might have been fabricated or were misinterpreted meteorological phenomena, others were definitely real. Next, the ships were disks. Witnesses consistently reported round, saucer-like shapes, and most appeared to have a metallic shell. Onlookers often sighted the aircraft in groups as small as three or as large as nine. They traveled in formations and never held a singular direct flight path. As they flew forward, they'd also dart up, down, left, and right. To reach these conclusions, the team had tried to cover their bases. They started with domestic programs. They reached out to various secretive research and development divisions of the military to see if any had created the flying saucers. But none claimed the crafts as their own. So in the end, the report recommended that the USAF allocate resources to study their origins. The report was sent to a specific division of the Air Force, the Air Material Command, abbreviated AMC. The central purpose of AMC in this era was to develop and evaluate defensive Air Force weapon systems. AMC agreed with many of the report's findings, and they added a few opinions of their own. Based on the saucer's reported behavior, it seemed they could be controlled automatically or remotely rather than by an in-flight pilot. But without any physical evidence, the AMC couldn't reach a conclusion about this or the aircraft's origin. They could have been manufactured domestically, outside the security clearance of the USAF. Or worse, they could be foreign-made. An enemy nation could have developed a new kind of propulsion system that far outstripped American technology. The AMC letter concluded with an endorsement of the plan to form a special project to study the flying saucers. Researchers in the project soon set to work. They had no reason to believe the investigation would last much more than a few months, maybe years. They had no idea that they were just at the starting line of a decades-long investigation into a vast and complicated unknown. Up next, Air Force intelligence suggests that flying saucers might belong to someone or something more sinister than the Soviets. Listeners, do I have a mystifying new show for you. It's called Superstitions, and it explores the varying beliefs people around the world fear and follow. It's so eerie, I know you'll love it. Every Wednesday, step inside stories that illustrate the horror, weirdness, and truth behind humanity's strangest codes of conduct. 
Why shouldn't you say Macbeth in a theater? What evil gets triggered when you walk under an open ladder? And how come certain films seem cursed and others don't? Each new episode of Superstitions presents a story that unlocks the mysteries of unorthodox traditions and surreal phenomena. They may seem cryptic or illogical or completely insane, but then again, do they? Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Superstitions, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the summer of 1947, the United States Air Force brushed off witness statements about flying saucers as figments of the human imagination, a pop culture trend. But when military personnel spotted strange aircraft over one of their bases, their minds changed. By the end of 1947, Air Force Intelligence approved a classified project targeting the study of UFOs. Codename? Project Sign. One leader from AMC played a key role in the project, Chief of Intelligence Colonel Howard M. McCoy. McCoy spent the end of 1947 gathering an elite team of engineers, intelligence, and Air Force officers. In late January 1948, the researchers met in a secure conference room at Wright Field, now known as Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Greene County, Ohio. This would be their headquarters. First, Project Sign's goal was to analyze all existing public statements about flying saucers. Then, they would evaluate which they considered potentially dangerous. In the early days, Air Force Intelligence planned to keep the project in-house. But shortly after wading into his research, they realized they were out of their depth. To give each testimony proper analysis, they needed experts in meteorology, psychology, chemistry, physics, and other related fields. Gradually, the project expanded, exporting specific cases for specialist evaluation as required. These outside opinions made it easier to determine the source and credibility of UFO sightings. The team was able to discern which sightings represented potential national security threats and which didn't. For example, Project Sign utilized data from the Air Weather Service, which coordinated and tracked the activities of weather balloons nationwide. These high-altitude balloons carried equipment that measured atmospheric conditions like temperature, pressure, and wind. Meteorologists used that data to make weather predictions. Cross-referencing the location and time of a sighting with the launch of these devices made it easy for Project Sign to determine if a witness saw a potentially dangerous foreign aircraft or a weather balloon climbing to a higher altitude. Contacts at the Weather Bureau Library provided similar information about climate conditions nationwide. 
They debunked many UFO claims as lightning or unusual cloud formations, even tornadoes. At the Aero Medical Laboratory, neurology and psychology professionals ruled out sightings caused by hallucinations or psychosis. But even as the team whittled down the cases, a few UFOs remained inexplicable. And more sightings kept coming in. Before the end of 1948, two new sightings left experts scratching their heads. In both cases, the witnesses were especially credible. No weather phenomenon or other known aircraft could explain the saucer's sudden appearances, or how they appeared to defy the laws of physics. One of these sightings happened on April 5, 1948, at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. Several Air Force engineers walked out onto the airfield, likely to test some kind of new prototype. It's unclear exactly what they were doing. The details of their research were confidential, even to Project Sign personnel. But when they arrived on the field, they spotted two enormous beige objects floating high in the atmosphere, round, but not quite symmetrical. The odd aircraft moved unnaturally. One swerved to the right, then lost altitude quickly. It looped back up, making a large circle, and then... It vanished. The other object flew on a similar circular path, completing three loops down and up, down and up, down and up, before... It accelerated and disappeared over the western horizon. The officers on the tarmac were left speechless. The ships could not have been deflating weather balloons. Nobody knew of any earthly mechanical object capable of flying at such high speeds or disappearing so suddenly. The events at Holloman Air Force Base and a handful of other credible sightings brought the team at Project Sign into a new chapter. They didn't expect to encounter technology that seemed so impossibly advanced. For the first time, Project Sign had to confront the possibility that perhaps the aerial phenomena people had reported didn't come from a known enemy. Perhaps these crafts came from somewhere beyond their planet. The thought crossed their minds, but project leaders like McCoy weren't ready to tell their military superiors that they suspected extraterrestrials might be visiting Earth. They didn't want to put their careers on the line for something so fantastical without more proof. Fortunately for Project Sign, a watershed sighting was just around the corner. On July 24, 1948, Captain Clarence S. Childs and his co-pilot, John B. Whitted, flew a commercial airplane over Alabama. Their routine flight was interrupted when Child spotted something emerge from the horizon line. It was moving fast. The flying object emptied a thick line of exhaust behind it, similar to a jet, but it didn't resemble any aircraft they'd ever seen. As it came closer, they noticed that it had no wings and was shaped like a cigar. The side of the ship had two lines of windows running down its length, but there weren't any passengers seated behind the panes of glass. Instead, there were impossibly bright, flickering flames. Childs later equated their appearance to burning magnesium. 
The exhaust that was escaping out the back had an unnatural blue tint to it, as if created by the same fires burning inside the ship. Chiles and Witted estimated that the object passed their airliner at over 500 miles per hour. It came so close that Chiles needed to abruptly steer his craft left to avoid a collision. Then, the flying cigar ship circled behind the plane with astonishing agility and speed. After that, Witted watched it disappear. Several other witnesses confirmed Childs and Witted's account. At least one passenger on board the flight added that they saw strange lights outside their windows. A technician at Robbins Air Force Base in Georgia spotted the bizarre aircraft from the ground. Another pilot reported a similar encounter with a cigar-shaped craft while flying above North Carolina that day. No expert could fully explain how an aircraft shaped like a cigar could maneuver and accelerate the way Childs and Witted testified. The exhaust and continuous combustion described didn't align with anything fuel experts had ever seen, not on Earth. The Soviets might have some advanced technology, but nothing like this. Hearing reports from so many experienced, reliable witnesses helped build confidence at Project Sign. McCoy felt like they now had enough evidence to present the extraterrestrial hypothesis to his superiors. In September 1948, the team put together an official summary of their findings, which they called an estimate of the situation. Air Force Captain Edward Ruppelt wrote the final paragraphs, which asserted that the UFOs they'd studied were from another planet. The potentially explosive report moved through the Air Force ranks until it finally landed on the desk of Air Force Chief of Staff General Hoyt S. Vandenberg. Vandenberg was unforgiving in his feedback. He returned the submission without approval, saying that it lacked evidence. He even declassified the document soon after to show how worthless he thought it was, and perhaps so that everyone in the Air Force would know his stance on such an outlandish theory. Morale at Project Sign crashed. They were the laughing stock of their military branch. McCoy had to rally his team. They still had a mandate. Vandenberg only provided them with new orders. Find more evidence. Coming up, Project Sign doubles down on their extraterrestrial theory. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now, back to the story. In 1948, Project Sign set out to determine if UFO sightings in American airspace posed a threat to national security. The Air Force team, led by Colonel Howard M. McCoy, initially suspected the Soviets were responsible. But evidence suggested the culprits may have actually been extraterrestrials. 
However, when the team delivered a report to their superiors stating as much, the Air Force Chief of Staff, General Hoyt S. Vandenberg, rejected the report for lack of evidence. This marked the beginning of a decades-long ideological war. On one side were men like McCoy, who were on the ground analyzing incoming data. With no other explanations for some of their findings, they believed that UFOs came from another planet. On the other side were high-ranking military officers who feared public and professional scrutiny for such an unprecedented hypothesis. They condemned the concept of intergalactic UFOs and hoped to erase any mentions from military records. The first shot was fired in 1948 by the Director of Intelligence, Major General Charles Cabell. After Project Sign's disastrous estimate of the situation, General Cabell commissioned his own report on the flying saucers. Project Sign continued their work, but Cabell designed his efforts to undermine theirs. Cabell's document mentioned nothing about interplanetary travel. As had been suggested before, it concluded that the aircraft were most likely created by an enemy nation. The report speculated that the foreign UFOs might serve to, quote, negate U.S. confidence in the atom bomb as the most advanced and decisive weapon in warfare, thereby inspiring fear in the public. The presence of hostile aircraft overhead was already causing a frenzy in the United States. Maybe that was the intention. Cabell also suggested they could also be photographing American military bases or performing other acts of reconnaissance. Or worse, they could be testing U.S. defenses. If that was the case, the Air Force was in trouble. So far, none of the UFOs had been challenged by the American military. By only observing the strange aircraft, they could be leaving the United States vulnerable to attack. When McCoy and the other Project Sign members heard about this competing report, they didn't view it as a personal attack. According to Air Force Captain Edward Ruppelt, at first, they assumed the top military personnel were managing the public's reaction. Evidence of potentially sinister life arriving from another planet could create a panic. In fact, the more that members of Project Sign learned about UFOs, the more they likely appreciated the need to insulate the public. Some of their findings were downright disturbing. One of Project Sign's most prolific consultants was Dr. George E. Valley, an MIT physicist. His analysis illustrated a few problems with Cabell's report. Dr. Valley focused mostly on reports of saucer-shaped flying objects, and he laid out a variety of ways they could be made to move so strangely. But most of his explanations were speculative and imaginative. Based on current technology, he admitted that it was hard to say how such oddly shaped objects could achieve the lift required to become airborne. What's more, there were other mysteries, like the cigar-shaped craft's bright fuel. How did it power the ship? And what was it? From Dr. Valley's point of view, the Soviets couldn't have built anything like what witnesses described unless they created it with some kind of special help. He made this assumption based on the Soviet Union's past. 
He claimed that the Soviets often manufactured their aerotechnology by building upon the discoveries of their neighbors. Even considering the remarkable scientific resources and talent the USSR had at their disposal, such a significant chance discovery seemed extremely unlikely. Dr. Valley also pointed out a common-sense hang-up. General Cabell's competing report argued that the Soviets used the UFOs as spy planes. If they wanted to perform reconnaissance, however, why would they use their brand new technology? Surely, if the USSR had a secret weapon, they would use it to attack. Eventually, word of this debate reached the Soviets when rumors about their involvement with American UFOs surfaced in the press. USSR Deputy Foreign Minister Valerian Zorin equated the insinuations with slander. Zorin asserted that anyone who claimed the Soviet Union created the flying saucers intended to destroy diplomatic relations between the countries. He suggested that whoever leaked this information to the press wanted to drum up war hysteria. From a certain paranoid American point of view, the Soviet denial only indicated that the USSR wasn't yet ready to engage in open warfare. Perhaps they wanted their UFOs to remain under radar and out of public discourse until the technology had been properly tested. However, McCoy and the rest of the Project Sign team seemed to believe the Soviet statements were made in good faith. The Soviets honestly had no idea what the UFOs were, and they wanted nothing to do with them. Despite their differences in opinion, General Cabell wanted Project Sign to keep up their investigation. He needed more research, but he narrowed the scope of the project. On November 3, 1948, Cabell wrote to Project Sign with direct orders to focus their work on the USSR. His letter read almost like a peace offering. General Cabell reminded Colonel McCoy that they both agreed that at least some UFOs were real crafts that were deserving of their attention. But neither Project Sign nor General Cabell had generated any clear evidence of their origins. This was the problem. Until the military had such proof, they couldn't take action against their enemy. If the ships were Soviet, then the communist nation's technology already surpassed the U.S. and could be gaining more ground with each passing day. General Cabell implored McCoy and his team to redouble their efforts to, quote, determine whether these objects are of domestic or foreign origin until conclusive evidence is obtained. McCoy and the rest of Project Sign read the correspondence from General Cabell with disappointment. They knew why he asked them to determine whether the objects were foreign or domestic. He wanted them to abandon their theory that UFOs came from another planet. It appeared the bureaucrats in Washington had already drawn their conclusion and wanted Project Sign to find evidence to support it. But McCoy didn't give in just yet. He wrote a polite and diplomatic response to Cabell while still insinuating that an extraterrestrial origin was still the most viable explanation. 
he reiterated points about the remarkable, even unbelievable performance of some of the aircraft, writing that no known science can explain their movements. According to current aerodynamic theory in this country, these aircraft would have relatively poor climb, altitude, and range characteristics with power plants now in use. In other words, nobody on Earth could figure out how these UFOs worked. But McCoy and the rest of his project signed teammates paid dearly for their attempt to continue their line of research. Near the end of 1948, Top military officials summoned the members of Project Sign to Washington, but not to plead their case. Officials in Washington ordered them to compile a final report with all existing research and hand it over to the Pentagon and the Air Force Scientific Advisory Board. Their project had been terminated. Yet even in defeat, Project Sign maintained their beliefs. In their final summary, they pointed out that the project was still in the data collection phase. They'd only had time to analyze a small percentage of what they considered credible UFO sightings. They also admitted that witness testimony had limited value. Definitive proof wouldn't be possible without discovering UFO wreckage or an intact grounded aircraft. Finally, to give their conclusion maximum credibility, McCoy and his team reached out to the most powerful experts at their disposal, the RAND Corporation. As a think tank and one of the foremost military contractors, RAND possessed a broad knowledge of existing technology and a high security clearance. An in-depth analysis from RAND employee James Lipp appeared in an appendix of Project Sign's final report. Lipp concluded that any interplanetary visitors would most likely be from our solar system, given the fuel required to make such a journey. Based on neighboring planets' conditions, Lipp determined Mars was most likely. From there, he detailed the environment of Mars and hypothesized how fast an aircraft would need to travel to escape its gravitational field. He even generated a prospective fuel breakdown for trips between the two planets. But ultimately, Lipp concluded that although UFOs could possibly come from space, it was highly unlikely. And it was on this lackluster note that Project Sign closed up shop forever in February of 1949. McCoy must have thought his program's conclusion represented the end of Air Force extraterrestrial research. After witnessing the bureaucratic response from Washington, Project Sign member Captain Ruppelt was sure that the entire military-industrial complex subscribed to UFO denialism. They would rather ignore a problem than admit they were wrong. Captain Ruppelt's assessment was right on one count. The administrators in the Pentagon were adamant that UFOs weren't interplanetary travelers. But they were still concerned about hostile foreign relations. So, after terminating Project Sign, they commissioned another classified investigation. They hoped the new team wouldn't be as obstinate as Colonel McCoy's. The new project was given a codename that reflected the Pentagon's history of frustration with unidentified flying objects, 
as well as their fraught relationship with the previous set of researchers. Project Grudge. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Project Sign, amongst the many sources we used, we found Thomas Tullian's book, History of the United States Air Force UFO Programs, as well as Kate Dorsch's dissertation, Reliable Witnesses, Crackpot Science, UFO Investigations in Cold War America 1947 to 1977, extremely helpful to our research. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Jay Cohen, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Hannah McIntosh, with writing assistance by Molly Quinlan and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brad Klein and Brian Petrus. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Bad omens? Good fortune? Pure luck? Take a closer look at what you believe in and follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Superstitions. New episodes air weekly, every Wednesday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.